What's up, everybody? Jason with Founders BR. Super excited to share with you today's episode as we sit down with Frankie Robertson, who is the president and founder of the Amanda Group, which is a social justice consulting firm focusing on the social and political determinants of health through policy, research, and advocacy. And in today's episode, we talk about her journey and her impact that she's making in the community from starting an organization in the middle of a pandemic earlier this year in 2020 and how she's done that and how her past has influenced her present. It's been really an amazing story to be able to share. It's been an honor to be able to know Frankie as long as I have to watch the impact that she does in the community. And so I really hope you enjoy it. So without further ado, check it out. Frankie, I um, really appreciate you taking some time this morning. I have, I know we were chatting earlier and, and we've had the pleasure of, of our past continually intertwining through the years and uh, going back way back into the day when I was renting cars as a wee whippersnapper right out of college while washing cars as a suit back at Enterprise. <laughs> right. And, um, I had the pleasure of like seeing you pretty much like every Monday and you were off on the road. <laughs> It's been really cool to uh, have you here and where we're sitting at now. And, and I've been truly considered an honor um, to have, have seen your career and what you've been able to accomplish and, and what you're doing, um, not only within the organizations that you serve, but within the community. And so I just give you a big thank you for all you do. Thank you. It's, it's an honor to know you and, and think about how how we met each other and to still preserve this professional relationship for so long is certainly an honor. And I'm, I'm totally thrilled and I appreciate this invite. I'm looking forward to our conversation today. Yeah, absolutely. Likewise. So I, I like to start off everything, Frankie, I, you know, and we'll get we'll get into some of what you're doing within the, the Amanda group. And am I saying that correctly? Is it the Amanda group? It's perfect. Yes. Thank you. Perfect. Perfect. So and I definitely want to get into that, but I, I like to ask everybody kind of like almost like a superhero story. We, we, we know you've got the cape underneath, <laughs> um, but I want to hear your, your origin story. So going back to, you know, your, your upbringing, where are you from? And, and tell us a little bit about that. Sure. I am originally from Clinton, Louisiana. It's a small town about 45 miles north of Baton Rouge. It's a, a small town. We consider it country. And my, my parents both grew up there. Um, but throughout my life, we found ourselves back and forth, not continuously, but as opportunities presented themselves, um, living in Baton Rouge and then back in Clinton, attending uh, schools here in Baton Rouge and then attending schools in the Clinton, Louisiana community. So once I started college at LSU uh, way back in 1994, I permanently moved to Baton Rouge and then my family made that final move to Baton Rouge as well. So we've been here ever since. Gotcha. So you start in Clinton, you had living up in Baton Rouge. So this is this has been home for quite a while. It has been. It, it definitely has been. And we've always had relatives that have lived here and in between in the Zachary Baker area. So it wasn't a big shift. It wasn't something that we didn't know to live in Clinton. I mean, to come to Baton Rouge is where you come to function or Baker and Zachary to come and shop or do things. So it was, you know, a place you go over the weekends and just a common common place to visit. So it was pretty natural to make that move, but then still have relatives that live in uh, the Clinton area to be able to go and just take in the the life there and the the the, the country 
type atmosphere, the peacefulness that is associated with a small town. So to be able to have both is great. Yeah, that's fun. Yeah. It's interesting. I, you know, I, I am, um, you know, Baton Rouge is home for me. And this is, and, and this is all, you know, we were talking earlier as well. You know, the reason we started this podcast is, is really to share the amazing stories like you have of leaders and, and creators in the community, because honestly, and we'll talk about this. I have, you know, I have two, I have two little ones and I, I want them if they so choose to stay in Baton Rouge to have opportunities. And so um, it's been really cool. I'm, I'm not from here, but coming here, seeing even in the short time I've been here, the evolution of what Baton Rouge has done um, in just a short 10 years for the amount of time that you've been here. I'm sure that evolution has been pretty, pretty incredible to see as well, because it certainly continuously goes through changes like any community does. And um, so I appreciate, again, what you're doing, because hopefully, it, uh, you know, it, this is these type of things that, that create opportunities for, for future people. Absolutely. So. I want to ask, so we start off, you're in Baton Rouge. Um, so you went to, to LSU and what did, what did you study there? What was your focus? And tell us a little bit about that, that journey. Yeah, my focus at LSU, it started off in fashion merchandising. You know, I wanted to, Okay. I know, right? <laughs> I love it. I want, I love it too. I wanted to really, I wanted to, to work in corporate America. I saw myself as the Lauren Finmore you know, uh, person, I don't know who, what listeners are, are fans of the young and the restless, but I'll just say the business side of Lauren Finmore. She owned, she owned Finmore's department store and, you know, you had the, the Jabot Cosmetics team and I just wanted to be in corporate America, be president of a company or be a part of the, you know, corporate board of directors. And I saw myself, you know, with starting that career by way of learning fashion merchandising, getting into oh, the, the fashion career industry. So it was really exciting. And, you know, I did that until about my, gosh, most of my, nearly my junior career and had some things that happened in my family that were very life altering for me. My dad um, suffered a stroke and throughout that rehabilitation process, we learned that he had pancreatic cancer. So we ended um, up just really, just life just took a turn. And um, I was navigating school throughout navigating this major life experience and, and, you know, possibly losing my father. And it just gave life a whole different meaning. So I um, did end up losing my dad. He lost his battle with pancreatic cancer. And I you know, was powering through at a very difficult time in school and just really needed a change. You know, felt very burnt out, but didn't want to feel like I was giving up by taking a break. And just really re- looked at my focus again and, and decided I wanted to be more of an advertising and PR. So I changed my major, took on a few minors and um, powered through and graduated a year or two years actually after he passed away and just said, you know what, I want to do something totally different. So that point I started just really focusing more on the business aspect, uh, planning to go to school to earn my MBA and um, just continuing to do things that I loved in the community, which was volunteering. And from there, really in an unexpected way, realized that volunteerism could take on more of a career, right? If that makes sense. Meaning I learned about the field of public administration by way of volunteering in the community, volunteering, serving on a board, volunteering with grassroots um, efforts to transform communities that were, were struggling because of disinvestments and really, really loved giving my all in the community and learned that, well, there was actually a major for that. 
and uh, just really started getting into my field and learning more about where I wanted to go to create systemic change in the community and understanding that that was through public policy and through just really working through community organizations. So I found myself landing in a place that would allow me to do that over the course of my career eventually. <laughs> right. What was, you know, I, I, I find it, it's always, I'm always inspired by those who have that giving heart, that, that, that drive. Where, was, there, was there a moment in your life where that was a switch that turned on? Or was that something like, hey, that was always kind of there? Like, how does that, how does that come about? Because not everybody does that. Not, not everybody has that. Or maybe people think about it, but don't have that. They don't actually action, make it actionable and go do that. Like, what, what was that for you? Was it a switch or was it something different? I can't think back to a time where I wasn't an empathetic person, but also look at the people who were influential in my life, my parents. My mom is just a very giving, nurturing person who is the most selfless person I've ever met. She has always shown me um, practicing empathy, giving towards others. So I didn't have to go and find someone. I could just wake up in the morning and look at her and see the things that she constantly did for family, how she loved and nurtured her mom how she loved and nurtured us, how she loved and nurtured siblings and how she would give her last to help someone and not blink twice about it. So, I mean, she rubbed off on me in a major way and she's the most beautiful person I know, the most caring, kind-hearted, wonderful person I know. And my dad um, was the same way, uh, just very uh, emotional person. And really through his sickness, seeing him evolve, he became very emotional and just very continuously, very caring about the well-being of others. I literally see him watching the news and he would just cry. And I think that was also evolution of his sickness um, as well as he was going through that journey. But to see that level of empathy exercised by my parents and then also several, you know, many of my siblings as well, is just something that I knew. But as a young child, I recall my original origins as far as as far back as I can think, was um, being an active participant in 4-H. That was my thing. I mean, I love okay. 4-H. <laughs> I love yes, 4-H. indeed. And Absolutely. Was, and it was one of the things we had, like I said, growing up in the country, so it was agriculture. So 4-H is what we knew. That was at the Extension Cooperative Extension Office, and I literally lived there. <laughs> oh, yeah. So like 4-H projects and you know, they taught us that, you know, reinforce or taught for some the spirit of volunteerism and giving back. So we would, through that organization, I began volunteering and I've always had a soft spot for kids, especially young kids um, and the elderly. But because I have such a soft spot for the elderly, I find it very hard to, to be in that space because it's just very heart-wrenching to see people in um you know, in that that space in life, especially when they're not supported by loved ones, um, you know, at those those later stages. So through 4-H um, there in our community in Clinton, there was a nursing home. So we would have the opportunity to go and volunteer at Grace Nursing Home. So I would spend time there. And it was it was great to, to see the residents have the visitate visitors and their eyes would light up. But it was also very heartbreaking just to see them and, you know, just in just relying on strangers to, to bring happiness. It was very concerning. And um, I also would volunteer with the local Head Start program. And that's where I found myself 
most at home because the little kids run up and you read them a book and, you know, you're literally like 14 or 15 and they're like Miss Frankie, you know, <laughs> I just like love to see big people come in that they don't know. So those are my origins with volunteering and pretty much have been, I guess, a serial volunteer ever since. That's awesome. Yeah, it's, it's um, that's really cool. So that's, you know, that's something since you were a little kid, you have your, your family, your, your parents being major influence and then 4-H. That, you know, that obviously plays a big influence as well. And so that that kind of is something that's always been a part of you. Um, yes. That's really, really, that's really, really cool. All right. So then so you so you you come out and, and you, you graduate. You were going to be a, a mogul fashion designer. You pivot. Merchandiser, not a designer. I, you know, Excuse artist in my Merchandiser. Mobile merchandiser, you pivot, and we go. Okay, you know what? We're gonna go a different route. You, you got that. You got the giving heart. You got your. You got your, all these influences on you. Okay, and so tell me about. Okay, so you get out. Of, you get out of LSU, and what's next? Or when I actually, I think you might appreciate this uh, too. So when I left LSU, I took a position as a uh, trainee with Sears and Roebuck and Company. So I'd heard so many great things about this training program, about how it elevates your career. It was a management training program, which is why yeah. I say you may appreciate this. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think that's oh, yeah. I, I, I a little it. bit <laughs> paralleled. So I started this train management training program. It was a um, really highly recognized program that really catapulted the careers of many people who plan to be in management. It was well known. It was, um, you know, difficult to be accepted into. And it was just it, I, that program and enterprise were the ones that we heard a lot about at our college recruitment fairs. They were really recruiting for graduates. So I accepted that position and I did that for about a year, really knowing um, pretty much within the program that it really wasn't for me in a long term, because at that point, like I said, I was much more interested in the community aspect, but I was working my full-time day-to-day at Sears and the training program, managing, doing rotations throughout the store, and working with the company who envisioned each of us at the end of this experience, going through maybe a year or two of the actual management of the department store departments, but then training you to own your own store, or not own your own store, but manage your own store. And if I continued that route, my sites were, well, I want to go to Hoffman Estates in, you know, Illinois because I want to be in the corporate office because everybody just wants to go right there the next step, right? Right, right. So throughout that evolution, you know, as I mentioned, I was volunteering in the community. And there at the time was a an initiative called the Casey Family Programs Initiative that was focusing on the Gardeer community and trying to address the issues associated with the community, basically not having investments and just addressing some of the some of the issues in the community related to access and um, just really investments with from the city allowing it to be a thriving community that it can be, but because there had not been those investments and because of the inequities that we know exist in our city and our state and our country, the community was struggling. So Casey Family Programs came in and a lot of community folks who are, you know, working like Baton Rouge Area Foundation, a lot of organizations joined forces to try to correct, you know, many of the 
the things that the community needed to thrive. So I found myself volunteering with that basically and fell in love with the process and met many of the people that I still know today who were working in that space, like Jerry Hobby and Ashley Shelton and so many other just amazing women and, and people that I truly adore and just really fell in love with, with that piece of creating change. So from there, um, eventually I realized, you know what? I can't, I can't do this Sears, um, opportunity anymore. I want to really, really be in the community. And there were some opportunities that presented themselves to me to be able to do that. And, um, I had to make some tough decisions on which, which route I would go. And at that point, I learned more about public policy versus, um, grassroots opportunities working in communities. And I wanted to be able to utilize my skills, whatever gifts I had and my passion to be able to make the biggest impact. And through weighing my options of how to move forward with being able to change my community, I thought that that was best suited with me working um, in public policy. So I took a job at the state capitol, actually working for State Senator Cleo Fields, and um, began working there and just really fell in love with the public policy piece. And looking at that how that influences systemic structural changes within communities, like what Gardier was experiencing, having volunteered that entire summer on this amazing amazing initiative to right many wrongs that plague the community, just basically due to inequities. Amazing, amazing. Um, yeah, I think, and I think it's so. I think it's um, you know. I, so you, you you make this you make the you go into it you start working in public policy now and you you're and, and starting to see the different ways of of making those influences within a community. I'm curious. So how long was it there? I know that you then eventually had a um, went with March of Dimes. So what 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 point was that in the transition? Did that come after or and and how did that work out? It did come after. After I worked at the, the state capitol, there was an opportunity that, that presented itself through, through some of those same circles to lead a youth nonprofit. So I actually served as executive director of the Louisiana Leadership Institute, which again takes me back to my love of young people and um, just my passion in working with and mentoring young people. And I served in that capacity for a few years. And then after that, um, I decided I wanted to um, really look at the research aspect of, um, again, community transformation and look at some of the systemic changes. So I uh, went to work at Southern University in the Center for Social Research with one of my mentors, Dr. Alma Thornton. And she taught me how to write grants, how to create community programs, how to address um, just issues that, that play communities through grants and program development, and how to just eradicate um, systems of generation, intergenerational poverty. And it was just a, a very amazing learning experience for me. And um, from there, um, I worked with just amazing, amazing people like the late Dr. William Moore, who was a friend and an amazing mentor who helped me along the way through my journey at um, Louisiana Leadership Institute as a colleague and coworker, and then as another colleague and coworker at the Center for Social Research. And um, from there, you know, I worked there for a few years and had an opportunity to work on some really amazing programs and meet, work with really amazing people. And the opportunity came about with March of Dimes being that it was a state level position and I was working in a city based position, working mainly in um, communities surrounding Southern University and specifically in Baton Rouge. And um, someone told me about the opportunity with March of Dimes 
which would have allowed me to work at a statewide level for a national organization to create change at an even greater level. So I applied and I was actually hired in that position. I believe at the time I was one of the youngest, if not the youngest state director in the country. Um, one of the only African American state directors in the country. So it was a, a monumental experience for me to elevate my experience and bring my experience as a black woman and the things that I know about community and birth outcomes and health. And it was just an opportunity that I could not pass up to continue to give back to my community. So that started my, my career with March of Dimes, which actually spanned for about 12 years. Amazing. Amazing. Yep. I think that's, and I think that's what we got eventually. Like we've now kind of like driven the path to our connection. I'm coming <laughs> yeah. closer to the prize, right? Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so March of Dimes, that's amazing. And, and I think, and again, this is knowing, knowing you up, you, the, the recognition 40 under 40 and, and just some of the things that you've been doing is no surprise. Just even hearing what you've done in, in such a short amount of time as well is, is impressive, Frankie. Um, Thank you. You know, I, so you have March of Dimes. So this brings us now, you know, I want to bring us to, to where we're at today. So if, I'm, if I understand it correctly, just earlier this year, you start the Amandla Group in 2020. <laughs> during pandemic. During, during, a pan- during the pandemic. So you have, you have this fantastic career. You've, you've accomplished so much and you've done so much. Um, and in earlier in early 2020, you start a pandemic in one of the craziest years we possibly have. So I'm going to leave it open to you to tell me tell me about this journey. <laughs> I think that's where we just dropped the mic right there. I think that's just enough. Boom. <laughs> just like... Boom. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So right, Jason. So in March of this year, I started the Amanda Group, and I'll just take you back really quickly. You know, with March of Dimes, uh, we were, you know, going through some restructuring opportunities at the time. And I decided this was a great time for me to walk out on a leap, uh, take a step of, of faith and walk out on a leap of faith. And having worked for the organization for about 12 years and having the opportunity to not only have to leave, to leave my imprint here in Baton Rouge, I, I took on national roles for the organization. So uh, in or roles advising the, the president of the foundation on issues impacting the state directors. I was really happy to receive several promotions within the organization going from the state director, which is where I initially met you, just driving all over the state, going to Shreveport so often, just burning up cars, wheels and tires, and just trying to, you know, make myself, just kind of clone myself all across the state of Louisiana to receiving a um, promotion as a regional director of advocacy and government affairs where I manage about seven states and the territory of Puerto Rico, and I focused specifically on advocacy. So I found myself being a lobbyist in Mississippi, advocating for policy changes that impacted the health of women and and children, and then uh, supporting team members and contract lobbyists across states like Mississippi, Alabama, Tennessee, the Carolinas, Georgia, Florida, Puerto Rico, and then Louisiana, kind of back and forth on when I was assigned to that state and when I wasn't. So it was definitely a a great journey. And when I decided that it was time to part from the organization and make my own way, I just thought about the various experiences that I had throughout the organization, the knowledge that I took in, the partnerships that I developed and the relationships that I had, but mostly largely shaped from my own experience while working at one of the key maternal child health organizations, 
I actually became a mission mom. In 2015, I had my first child. I worked with the organization, my, my wonderful son, Levi II. And he, uh, he was born full-term healthy. I mean, I literally worked on a Friday, had him on a Saturday. And my team member was like, Frankie, please don't have that baby at work. I'm like, I'm not. Come on. I know the son of the labor. I'm not. So they were so happy when it literally texted them, said the baby's here. They're like, because I Friday, I said, I'll see y'all Monday. And they're like, oh, no, you will not see this Monday. So my baby was hours. I'm going to finish my, my day. Right. My baby was due that Tuesday that passed. And I was still at work on Friday. And they're like, don't have that baby here. And I said, I'll see y'all Monday. I know you won't. So Saturday, I have my baby. It was a, a totally textbook thing. You know, I work for March of Dimes. I'm literally in the delivery room because everybody there knows I work for March of Dimes. They're talking to me about my job. And I'm just talking away about my job because I love it and I love what I do. And that was my storybook and, you know, story. And it was so different from the families that I talked with that shared their experiences of preterm birth or infant loss. And that I just talked to many years, cried with, empathized with, tried to elevate their voices, um, advocate for them advocate on their behalf with policymakers. And then here comes 2017. I find out that I'm pregnant. And what I learned very quickly is that this may not be the storybook pregnancy and birth that I had with my son. I found out that my my placenta, which is the lifeline from the mom to the baby, um, was blocking my birth canal. And the doctor said, well, this could be potentially life-threatening. So we need to schedule a delivery for you or an early a C-section to get on the front end of labor because we don't want you to have this this baby vaginally. We, we need to remove your child by C-section because your child can't pass your placenta. That could kill you if you start to hemorrhage. And that was one of the most frightening things that I heard. And I just thought about, wow, just you know, three, four months ago, we started talking about the rate of Black women dying in childbirth at work. And never did I think that my life was at risk having a baby, I thought my child was at risk because being a maternal child health expert working in this field, your fears as a birthing person oftentimes are about miscarriage. And you understand the statistical possibility of you having a miscarriage in the first trimester, second trimester. And you know, once you make it to the second trimester, that the the risk are reduced. And once you make it to the third trimester, they're, you know, pretty much diminished, but there could be complications there, but not, you know, miscarriage. And that was always my fear. But then when I made it um, throughout my pregnancy with my son, I said, well, you know what? The first one went fine. I'm no longer afraid of these things. But to be in a doctor's office and have them say, we're going to do a C-section. And that's against everything that I've shared publicly with the organization. No C-section, 39 weeks. It's got to be medical necessary. That was a big deal to me. And I was in the doctor's office and I was crying. My husband was there holding my hand. And I'm thinking, wow, I have a child. I mean, I, I'm deaf. I mean, I'm just not, I'm, it's hard to process this. So that was a very much a defining moment for me. And just going through the process of working with maternal fetal medicine and being monitored and starting to have issues of hypertension during pregnancy, which means high blood pressure during pregnancy, and just experiencing it from a totally different landscape that I'd experienced my first pregnancy was so such a defining moment for me that um, eventually I ended up being, uh, well, I had the flu, so that was very stressful in my pregnancy. I was highly stressed in general throughout my pregnancy from societal issues that had been happening, uh, political determinants. And it was just a rough, rough period for me, 2016, 
We had injustices that occurred in our community. We had the great flood. My best friend passed away. I mean, anything and everything that could happen between June and November of 2016 happened. And I went through um, my pregnancy still carrying that weight and also finding myself actually clinically depressed, and um, which is a threat to a pregnancy. So it was a lot. So it just really opened my eyes to a lot of things that pregnant women go through, especially Black women, and hence just really helped birth my concept and idea of launching the Amanda Group. I ended up having my daughter three months early and being delivered by a C-section because my blood pressure was creating problems and uh, potentially putting her life in jeopardy where she was becoming less and less responsive. And it just was an eye-opening experience for me. And then after that, just really experiencing things like um, postpartum anxiety, um, post-traumatic stress disorder from just the traumatic birth experience and the hospitalization of my daughter. It was such an eye-opening experience to me that women go through this, but so many people don't talk about it. And there's so much stigma associated with it. And families, well-intended, well-meaning families want to help people as they're going through this, but they don't really know how. And I was dedicated and committed to when I felt the time was right for me to talk about this, to help open up the conversation amongst other women's dad, women, dad, and families, and to be able to share my story to hopefully just inspire people to power through and to be able to talk about this so we can normalize these things that are pretty normal um, statistically for people. So when I left March of Dimes, I knew that I wanted to focus on certain things. I wanted to focus on the challenges that Black and Brown women and birthing people face, um, the things that pose threat to our pregnancies, our mental and physical well-being, the injustices that exist that pose threats from a day-to-day basis. But then also wanted to focus on normalizing perinatal mood disorders that, that impact many of us. And to be able to talk to moms and dads and say it's okay, and to really in, enlighten employers about this issue and encourage and advocate and demand that they offer things like paid leave and paid sick leave uh, to employees because you know everyone's story is different, but one thing we can agree upon is that um, people need time to heal after a pregnancy no matter who you are. And when we don't have those proper times to heal, it can have a trickle down effect for us that could train, change the trajectory of someone's life and for that of their children. So by way of me forming my organization, I am dedicated to focusing on these issues that aren't so easy to address, that are systemic in nature. And because it's my own organization, I have the flexibility to do that. So that's a very exciting thing for me. That's amazing. And, and, and thank you for sharing that. Um, because it's a very personal story and it's, um, you know, I, for, for me, and I'm sure everybody listening is going to pick up something different from, from each part of that, mm-hmm. you know, I just even for, so I have two, two young girls and, and, you know, I think you talk about what some of the things that just aren't always talked about. And I, I remember my, my, my wife had shared something and it was a picture of, um, we had so between our for our first and second we had a miscarriage in between that and that that was a hard time for us and it was a picture of a of a mom and it was and she was holding her kid up and she was smiling and it was sunshiny and she's and the, and underneath the caption it said this is this is this is a mother who is um, depressed and you know yes. it was like it was such a uh, it was hard to talk about so you know it's it was such a, a hitting moment that you recognize that 
even though things may seem okay on the outside, that, that it's not always that that way. And the, 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 all the challenges, there's so many things that it's, um, it can be very, very difficult. And so creating an environment that makes you feel comfortable to talk about it and to open mm-hmm. up and to do that, it relieves so much burden and just creates uh, opportunities for, for healing. And um, it does. And so, uh, you know, I'm just, I'm just moved by it. And I appreciate you sharing and, and all the work that you did at March of Dimes. Anybody who knows about that organization who's been touched by it recognizes the amazing work that, that it does. And, and now what you're doing currently with the Manly Group is awesome. So I, I just, I'm just saying to thank you for sharing that because I think everybody recognizes that the more we talk about it and, and create opportunities for these types of conversations, it makes people more comfortable and allows for that healing. I think it's awesome. Well, Jason, thank you for sharing your story and my condolences to you and your wife on the loss of your precious baby. And I appreciate you sharing that um, because that that's something that's very difficult to share. And um, with sharing your experiences, it helps create a dialogue and a conversation, even looking at things where people mean to be supportive, but we know they say the most awful things during a time like that, such as a miscarriage and a loss. So just talking about these things really helps hopefully change the course of how people can begin to heal and how people who genuinely mean well, who want to help people heal, can understand what's okay to offer, what's okay to say, and how to open that conversation. So thank you. Yeah, of course. Well, thank you. So so you have so you have the you have you have the Amanda group, you do it in 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 this 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 crazy of a year. Best year ever, right? <laughs> Best year ever. We got yes. 14 days left yes. <laughs> um, as we count down. But, um, you know, one of the things, the work that you're doing is, you know, I was I was reading through some of the articles and this may be a little bit of a pivot, but I really want to jump into it because I, I was I was really um, it was very amazing, like jarring when I read it. The article about black women's equal pay day. And I saw you had an article about that. And I, and I, and I wanted to, I wanted to bring it up because. Is the date in August, and I apologize, I don't have it memorized. No, August 13th. August yes. August 13th. And that was the day that was equal to prior year's work, just to, to, to be equal with, from a pay standpoint. And it was just very, like, it's eye-popping. And I'm just curious, just tell me your perspective from, because I'm, you know, me as a, you know, I have, I came up my, 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 um, you know, I'm a, my mother from El Salvador. My father was born and raised um, Lake Charles, you know, white male. And, and, and I, you know, my perspectives, everybody sees through their lens. And, um, and so I just want to like, tell me about that. Like, tell me about that for those listening and for everybody, you know, how do we, I guess I'll, I'll even just back up and say, tell me about that and let's start there. And then maybe we can kind of go from there. And thank you for this platform to talk about this. It's certainly an issue that we have to talk about. It's a reality. It's nothing that we can gloss over. It's not fictitious. It is rooted in research and it is there, whether as a community, as business owners, we want to acknowledge or we don't, it's there. And there's nothing we can do to, to change that fact that it's there, but change the disparity, the inequity itself through each of us using our level of influence, our power, our resources to collectively work together to change it. So thank you for this. So Black Women's Equal Pay Day, as you mentioned, is basically August 13th um, of each year. It's the day that Black women will catch up to the earnings of our white male counterparts. 
literally, what is that, eight months into the next year because Black women are paid 62 cents on a dollar compared to white men. And yes, it is deeply rooted in inequities. It's deeply rooted in the devaluation of just gender discrimination, one. But Black women have a double whammy in terms of gendered racism. And that's a term that I actually um, learned from I'm a mentor, Dr. Fleeta Mass Jackson, who does, who has conducted a lot of research on gendered racism. And that's the intersectionality between being Black and being a woman. So as Black women, we earn 62 cents on the dollar. And that doesn't mean that because we we have less education or less experiences, it's rooted in the fact that people determine what our pay is. And oftentimes we look at business structures and ownership and just the way that this community, not the community, just the way that the, the nation is currently established business-wise, we know that much of the ownership and many times the leadership in these positions are held by white men who are also making the determining factors on on pay. So it's just the reality of what it is. And Black women's work has longly been undervalued throughout our history in America. So it's something that is rooted in a historical context and it's systemic in nature, and it can be changed. Um, We know that Black women are one of the most educated demographics based in our country, meaning we have a large amount of college degrees, advanced degrees, but then also that comes with even more um, troubling I hate to say statistics or emphasis for us, looking at Black women and our achievement and how that correlates with poor birth outcomes, knowing that Black women with degrees and advanced degrees are in a higher bracket of risk factors associated with pregnancy and poor birth outcomes. And you would think that having an advanced degree or having that additional education would be a plus, but that actually creates additional risk factors for Black women. And it's largely due to the the stress factor that's associated with all of those things and achieving all of those things and operating in, in societies where you may be the only one or you may be the minority, the only Black woman or the only Black person and just operating in these environments that tend to be stressful because they are inequitable and um, they influence your health. So just really calling out this inequity was very important to me. Certainly not the first one to do it. It's something that is done every day, but I think it starts with having the conversation with people examining their pay structures, looking at what they're paying who within their own company, looking at things like discriminatory practices where you're not hiring someone because you see a name on the resume that one may associate and have stereotypes against, and just really looking at biases within that may be implicit or explicit that really do have a bearing on a person's life course, their trajectory, their ability to secure uh, generational wealth for their families. And it all goes back to this pain and disparity for not only Black women, but Black people in general, Black men as well. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, you and you said this, and this really strikes with me as well, because what, one of the things I really love when I was reading, I was reading the article and several of your articles is, is reckon, I think that it, like in anything, you can't look at anything in just a silo. You have, to, you have to step back and look at things from a holistic standpoint and recognize that one thing affects the other thing, affects the other thing, affects the other thing. And if you just put one thing in a vacuum and say, this is, let's look at this one piece and let's solve, can't just solve that one alone because then, you, then it falls over. So 
you said it exactly that not only is there there's that disparity, but then how does that affect then your mental health? And then how does that affect from your physical health? Because there's a direct correlation with that. And then it affects into pregnancy, it affects into it affects so many different things. And so I think it's important that anybody who's looking to address any of it has to step back and recognize that it's looking at the broad spectrum. And I thought that was really, really interesting. And which leads me to my to my next question, because one of the other articles you've written, and we, we talked about this, so we both have two kiddos that have not photobombed us yet. <laughs> um, Don't um, I guess it's, we're getting close <laughs> to that time. It's going to be super Yesterday, we're going to have some, some, some new guests uh, that are going to join this show here. Um, but, <laughs> but we have, um, you're talking about the working parents and the challenges that that brings. And so maybe tell me a little bit about that, about how it affects just within the community and maybe even your own personal journey as well. It does. And I'll share, I'll actually share a story. And this, this actually just happened, you know, yesterday. I have um, a family member who is in need of childcare, just like me. And we're sharing from the same, you know, pool of people. Our mom, you know, helps us. And I have a niece and my nephew-in-law just welcomed a beautiful, amazing baby boy. And he's about almost three months. And we are literally sharing amongst us, you know, the same sibling, the same mom, and just trying to see who's available so this person can go to this meeting, who's available so this person can do your thing on the calendar. I've already booked her. (laughs) Yes. Or I don't want to take you away. And yesterday I um, was committed to serving on a national panel and it was a Zoom meeting. And I said, you know what? I'm going to try to do this myself. I'm going to try to put my daughter down for a nap. I'm going to give my son his tablet during that time, providing with a snack, going against everything that I would have done prior to March. And that is a whole story in itself on guilt and frustration and, you know, just everything that comes with that when that wasn't your your day to day. And I came to my my senses and said, you know what? I really do need some support like from 4 to 5.30 today. And let me call a mom and see if she can come over. And that in itself is guarded because of the pandemic. We interact less and less with her. If she comes over, she has on a mask. If we see her, we do the same. I said, you know what? Let me see if someone's available to help me. And I reached out and everybody was basically booked to ask for one person to come would have taken them away from another person. And when when, you know, this family member found out that I was asking and they assumed the worst and they were just like, no, you can't take her because, you know, if the baby's crying, then I'm like, no, I'm not trying to take your support. I just asked if we could work this out. And I had to explain. I said, no, we're in this together. I totally know where you're coming from. And I actually texted them the Essence article. I'm like, read this. We're on the same page. Really, I'm not trying to take anyone from you. I just, I'm in a bond here. So with that, as you know, it is very challenging you know, there are some people who have been able to send their children back to daycare and to, um, you know, K through 12 school because the health risk for them may be minor compared to what it is for my family. Or some people have not had a choice. It's not just because they wanted to. Some people don't have the privilege to work from home like I do, and they have had to send them back. Some people realize they've met their mental limits. And for the sake of the, the value of their family and their well-being for their children themselves, they had to send them back. So it's a multitude of reasons why people, you know, are still keeping their children at home and why folks been able to utilize daycare if it's available to them and they can afford it. Um, for me, 
the health risks outweigh any benefit of sending my child, being I have an elderly parent with chronic health conditions that we are just totally, have totally encapsulated in a bubble. Um, we've got mentioned postpartum people. We had pregnant people at the time. So we had to monitor the way we moved about our community and make a lot of sacrifices because we want to keep ourselves safe and our, our overall community members, not just us. So with that became my child was immediately pulled out of daycare at a spot that we waited literally a year and a half for and gave away my spot for my two-year-old who we were waiting for her to get out of her immunocompromised fate due to her prematurity and said, okay, you guys are coming here. We're going to figure it out. And yes, it was during the time that I left my job. I'm starting a startup. I'm still literally working with a small business development center at the time. And my husband is an essential worker who was out every day and, you know, helping make sure, you know, people in the community have what they need. And it was a very trying time. And with that, like most people, you, you think that this is temporary. Well, it's turned into 10 months or so now. And, you know, the kids are still here. Introduction of virtual school in August, which was a, a thing within itself. And just total disruption like it was for, for many people. Um, and I just felt very passionate about writing about this through my work with National Birth Equity Collaborative. The opportunity presented itself for an MBAC team member to write an article about COVID-related issues and how it impacted Black moms specifically. And I chose that topic because it was super near and dear to my heart. And it's something that is just profoundly such a big part of life for us right now that I just wanted to communicate it and be a voice for my friends that I knew were having the same issues. People who I read their comments on Facebook and Twitter who are really struggling, who are trying to find ways to balance the life as we know it and continue to support your family. And it's just, it's definitely rough. But even in this, I recognize that in my situation, I still have it 10 times better than someone who has to go out every day and stock the shelves of a supermarket and be at risk so my family can eat. The people who are driving kids to school, teachers who are out on the front lines, um, medical professionals, maintenance workers, um, just people that are silently carrying us all through the pandemic. People who I see are dropping groceries off at my neighbor's house, to my house from time to time, who are risking it all, not because they may want to, because they have to, because we all have to eat and we all have to survive. So I wanted to tell that story and just uplift that for, you know, for, for, for people to be an advocate. So it's definitely rough for, for all of us. And, you know, for some of us, it's much more rough. Yeah. Well, I, I remember reading it and it was, you know, cause I think it was when we, when we looked through the, you know, from January to, to December, there was so many things that we, that were talking about through the pandemic, but I felt like that was one of the things that I don't was not really talked about nearly as much as anything else. And really, you know, the, the, the families, especially with young, with young kids that was kind of glazed over in, in, in a, in a, in a, in a bit. And so, you know, when I found the article, I was like, this is like one of a handful. I could probably even count that. I, that really spoke directly to, to the, to the working parent. And especially like you said, those who are essential workers who are, who, and, and don't have those alternatives. Cause me and my wife say that, all the time. And, and we even, we have, a, we even joke, we're like our, our first world problems <laughs> where, you know, we're, we're blessed that we can work at home and, and we sure we have our challenges, but, you know, in retrospect, when we think about, man, we, we are so fortunate. I, you know, I've learned through the pandemic that I'm, I'm a pretty good professional. I'm, I think I'm a great dad and I am a terrible teacher. <laughs> and, um, 
And uh, but we did our best. But we're fortunate enough that we can do that. And not everybody was given that opportunity. And so um, I think it's great that that we talk about that. We bring awareness to it because by bringing awareness, you can actually enact some change. And um, well, one of the things I was passionate about was telling that story and being very aggressive, I guess I'll say, about where the article could be shared, you know, wanting members of the business community, wanting managers to read this and understand if they weren't aware what their employees may be going through. And of course, in the beginning of the article, let's see what's the name of this article. The struggle is real. Working Black Mothers, Child Care and COVID in Essence Magazine, just in case anyone wants to take take a look at that just really being able to tell that story. So of course I started off and I started talking about what a somewhat of a typical day for me is like, but again, it's still from a very privileged lens of I work for myself. No one can fire me, of course, but my clients who many instances have extended grace to me. And I appreciate that as I figured things out as well and had moments and stress and all of those things that we all have and that we need to be open about to not set a false precedence for other people um, who are, are struggling and it seemed like we're in the minority when we're really in the majority, right? Because we have to talk about that. These are abnormal times and we can't have a facade as if everything's all right because it doesn't help the next person. So I share my story about working at home and having you know my own business and things like that. But again, it does not parallel the daily life and the daily struggle of people who have to go out to a separate location to work, who have to be on the front lines, who are exposed to the public, um, whose kids have to go to school because their employers are not extending grace and are not flexible to allow them to work from home when work from home options are an option or who are not protecting their employees against certain illnesses where families are vulnerable that when that loved one goes out to work, they come home and bring all of those atrocities and, and, and breaches back to their home and oftentimes intergenerational homes where there's grandma, grandpa, aunt, uncle, a sick person, a pregnant person, and just really wanting to give life to that experience with this article and the equal pay article and allow people to pause and think and put a, put a face and humanity to the experience and not so much have it swayed on the business aspect and I'm speaking as a business owner, right? So just understanding, yes, businesses need protections, businesses are livelihoods, but there's not a single per business except, you know, one person business that is not defined by its employees' contributions and employees' lives matter. They're important. And that per- person touches so many different people that we have to be aware of the daily struggle and pause and extend grace and just have a, a, an element of humanity leading all the decisions that business makers are making right now that affects so much more than that one person that is showing up every day religiously in a dedicated manner to that job. So, uh, you know, you talk about, you know, so we're talking about the things that are, you know, are happening now and, and, and work you're doing now. Looking forward. If we were to have a, a meeting three years from now and we look back to today, what would get you something that gets you really excited to say that you accomplished? Well, I would be really excited to think that through the opportunities that I have through my clients, such as National Birth Equity Collaborative, Metromorphosis, March of Dimes, Moms of Black Boys United, and, 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 and 
definitely more in the 2021 years. I can balance more once childcare resembles what it used to. Um, I would be really excited that I was a part of help telling the story um, through the national and statewide platforms that I've been afforded through my clients to really speak to what, what people are enduring at a very critical time as we look back and we look at this historic, unprecedented time that we have lived through, through many instances, pandemic, racial injustices, the political landscape of everything that's happening now and how it impacts people, no matter what their political affiliation is. We are really, we're really living through so many, so many things at once. And I will just be happy that I survived. And I think that that is good enough. And that my loved ones who have made it on the other side, because some have not, that we have survived and that we are stronger because of this and we have lived through a situation and we are more empathetic through because of this. We are more humane because of this and we watch out for fellow man because of this. And that I've also been able to, as I mentioned, lift up those stories through the platforms that I've been provided to tell that story for people who don't share those same platforms, who feel that their voices aren't heard, who really, really were a part of the, the, the heroic force that helped us all survive throughout this time, three years from now. Mm. You know, and you, you say this, but you know, this just made me think of this too. Because you, you, when you when you asked about what do you want to have in three years, it, you know, it wasn't wasn't a number, <laughs> it wasn't a you know, it was hey, it was it was all focused on impact, and which makes me think of like this year and the craziness this year. I think of you know, I have I have two daughters, and so I remember we told when. Um, when Kamala won as vice president, we told Audrey, my, I was like, hey, this is our first, you know, female um, black, pre- black vice president. And she went, there's never been one before. <laughs> and it was such wow. a sweet moment. And it was cool. And you know, it was kind of cool. Like, she doesn't even like it didn't it wasn't even like a thing. She was like, oh, that's kind of weird. Like, I thought there would be a bunch, you know, and it was it's like, what's wrong with everybody? <laughs> yeah. Like, huh? Right. You know? And, and right. Um, and so you, as a, as a parent, you know, you're, you're trying to always impart what you can and, and then you always learn back a lot. And, um, and I was kind of like, you're right. That's, that's crazy. <laughs> uh, you know, yes. and, and it was, it was, it was great that she has that perspective and there's no, yes. way. and so I feel that's blessing. And so I love that when you say that it inspires me about when you have enough people who go, what do you want three years to look like? And the answer is, man, I want to see, continue to see the world move forward and, and make change. And enough people are doing that. That's going to happen. Um, and uh, so that gets, gets me excited. So I'm curious about this question because now you, you ha- you've imparted a lot of wisdom. So I'm gonna, it's kind of tough because I don't know if, I don't know how we narrow it down, but if you could have a gigantic billboard anywhere with anything on it, Frankie, what are you putting on it? Wow. Um, you want, you want to pause on I, it and we circle back to it or you got something? Yeah, wrong? let's pause. No, I don't, don't have it yet. Let's pause and let's, let's go back. Like this is, I like it. If you could have recommend one to three books that greatly influenced your life, what would you recommend? So I would say the pursuit of happiness was one that influenced my life. And, um, a few years ago, I read a book called between the world and me. And that was by Ta-Nehisi Coates. And I always feel like I want to um, butcher his name. So forgive me if I did, because I always do have to just um, look it up just to make sure I'm honoring his name and his pronunciation correctly. 
that was a book that was really, really inspiring, inspiring to me, meaning that it gave voice to me as a mom of a Black son. And although he wrote the book about his experience with his Black son and him explaining the world to him as a mom, I could totally relate to that um, instant, it relate to his his feelings with, with everything and um, his concerns for his son. And I would say another book, gosh, not to narrow it down just on the spot, would be Good to Great. And I know that that is one that is an, is an oldie but goodie, but just looking at that in terms of um, you know, self-help, self-reflection books. But those would be three right offhand that I think have been uh, very inspirational to me or have made me feel that as though my concerns and my experiences as a mom with the Coates book was communicated to, you know, a larger audience. And then just with the triumphant nature of um, the gentleman in the pursuit of happiness, overcoming all that was thrown his way and experiencing that triumphant um, book and the nature of what happened was just really, really inspiring. I love it. Yeah. Uh, good to great was great. I love the pursuit of happiness and I'll have to check out between the world and me. I think that's great. I always love good new books. So um, I'm curious, where, where do you go to get your best ideas? I go to God to get my best ideas. I pray. And I also go to my lived experiences and I try to be very transparent as best I can, as best what is right for me in that moment. I don't always feel like being an open book. I'm human. Um, but as I'm able to share and comfortable, I go to my lived experiences and those of people around me who have shared theirs and those that I've seen. I go to that um, for my for my ideas. I love it. All right. So coming back, billboard questions. You got it? You think you, or you think you're close? <laughs> Yeah, I, I um, I actually got it and I lost it, but it's, it's coming back. Um, my billboard would be a question. Mm. And it would be a question and it would go back to May of this year when once again as a country, we were grappling or grappling with racial injustice. And I say once again, because it certainly was not isolated with that instance. But when George Floyd was killed um, by police in Minneapolis, Minnesota, which is where my brother lives. So this was also very frightening for me um, to be in a situation once again, where, you know, your loved ones are, it could have been your loved one, right? Um, or it doesn't have to be because of humanity. We care about whomever it is, right? Um, I go back to corporate America finally deciding to make a statement about Black Lives Matter. And so many corporations release statements, you know, from Amazon's, Nickelodeon to just everywhere. And as a Black person, it was just moment where I took a breath and said, wow, are we finally turning the corner? Are companies really people, it is not taboo for a non-Black person to say Black Lives Matter. We're not met with all lives matter and other options. I would say my billboard, not only in response to that, but looking at where we are today, that it is December, my billboard would say, do Black lives really matter? And it would be in response to 
that period over the summer where so many companies quickly professed through corporate statements that Black Lives Matter. And that would be my question for America moving forward with where we are now, especially that COVID has exacerbated inequities for Black and Brown communities. And as we look to a new day, whatever that looks for people, 2021, not forgetting about things that happened this year and that have been happening forever, but do Black lives really matter? That would be my corporate billboard so people can ask themselves that question and pack that in terms of what they do with it, with their influence and their resources moving forward. Uh, wow. That's, yeah, that's a, that's a good question. You know, I think it's, um, I don't know why this made me think of it, but I think of um, Kenny, Kenny Nguyen of, of 360, 368. And, and I think about you know, how we, how we respond to things, especially around conversations of equity and inclusion and, and, um, and diversity. And it's one thing to say something, but how do you make something actionable and how do you create, mm-hmm. you know, what do you actually are doing? And I think that question mm-hmm. speaks directly to that. And so, yeah, I, I knew your question would be good. <laughs> I knew your I knew your billboard would be good. Um, yeah. That's awesome. So I'm gonna oh, we'll go to a um, to a quick closing and we'll do some rapid fire questions. These are fun, and uh, and uh, so we'll, we'll we'll wrap on this note here. So I have um, it's the holiday season, so we're going into uh, we, for those who haven't done it yet, you've only got a small amount of time if you're if you're shopping for Christmas. Um, what purchase of a hundred dollars or less has most positively impacted your life in the last six months? But those on a budget. Ooh, hundred dollars. Um, light. <laughs> Ring lights. I actually have a few of those as the answer. Yeah, <laughs> ring light. That has been hundred dollars or less. And honestly, I go back to this. You know, not proud of it, but it has been helpful. But a tablet. Now that they're affordable, they're under a hundred dollars or affordable to some. That is that tablet usher my children along the way while mommy has to work. So it does come in handy sometimes, even though I'm not a fan, but tablet and ring light, it speaks to the pandemic. Right. Just put the right apps on it. You're good. That's funny. And the ring light, actually, you got to look if we, we spend so much time at zoom. You got to have the, you got to at least give yourself the best shot of not looking totally terrible. I say that about myself. Yeah. Um, ring light. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, uh, you're going. This is your your hype song. So, what's your uh, walking to the plate song? It's it's go. It's game time. What's your uh, get you get you ready song? <laughs> and that's so funny because I don't listen to music a whole lot. I'm so stuck in a '90s time warp. Apparently, I think. Um, <laughs> gosh, that, that should be an easy question. But to be honest, because I'm a mom, um, I'll actually have to say the thing that gets me going. I'm trying to think of one of my kids' songs because that's that's the thing that that comes comes to mind right offhand. I would say I have fallen in love with the alphabet song, um, okay. and that's I've been forced. You know, you know, A is for apple, a- 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 apple, <laughs> B is for ball, b- 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 ball. You know, and there's this totally version of this, and I'm not a singer, so forgive me. But my daughter played that song so much in the background of so many of my meetings, especially the meetings with my Manless Scholars uh, for, for the company. They, oh my, like I would just hear the tablet coming. A is for Apple. I'm like, okay, I love that song. I find myself just kind of my neck bobbing to it. So that's my jam, apparently. That's <laughs> my fandom jam. When you, when you oh, sit next- I forgot one thing. 
Which, which one? one did I forget? Which one is it? My school tablet and my work. Oh, my son says the school tablet and work was one thing. So yes, <laughs> virtual oh, kindergarten. That's a love fantastic it. answer. I love it. I love it. I love it. Yes. Um, <laughs> great answer. All right. So um, what are what are you not very good at that you wish you were? I am not very good at um, establishing boundaries on that's still a work in progress. I'm not very good at saying no. Mm. I think we all struggle with that in some degree, especially for those who are eager. Yeah, I, I can see that one. For me, although, well, I agree with that one. It's also the piano. <laughs> I'm not I grew up playing music and I picked all the instruments that are not good crowd pleasers like I'll walk and like hey you're a musician you we got a piano over here I'm like I, I learned how to play the drums the saxophone like anything else like things that are never just lying around and you wouldn't want me to just pick up and play anyways and <laughs> it's an accompaniment piece <laughs> yeah I, you know but I, I can say I mean I haven't I've never learned the the drums or piano, but I was a very good trumpet player. So I actually have music, music abilities. I'm just not a singer. Trumpet and French horn was my, yeah. So I've got musical abilities. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. I love it. All right. So we got a final, final, final question here. What's your, what's your uh, favorite place to get a cup of Joe best, uh, best lunch spot and your favorite dinner spot. So I have uh, found uh, Southern coffee. And it's near Southern University. Great cup of coffee, nice vegan selection of snacks, um, smoothies. I'm a green smoothie person. So I would have to say that is my favorite spot uh, to pick up some coffee and to get a nice green smoothie and to get these amazing vegan, like, oh gosh, what is it? Oatmeal type cookies. I mean, I, I totally want to leave and go get one now. So yeah, wow. that's spot. And then they just renovate it and it's just totally beautiful. Now, granted COVID, I don't, you know, go and sit in places, but I have gone and uh, just total beautiful atmosphere and can't wait to actually go back now that they have um, transformed the space, which was already beautiful before. So it's a really cool Uh, spot. If you haven't checked it out, I'd highly recommend it. I'm going to have to check that out. I can't, I I have a gluten and and dairy, so I'm always looking for good stuff. So that's going to be on the list. I love it. All right. Mm -hmm. Favorite, favorite lunch and dinner spot. So let's see. I, um, I love, I actually, I love food trucks and there's so many places. So it's, it's hard to give a favorite, but, um, Odom's kitchen, I have enjoyed meals and, and, and uh, having catering uh, from that business. They recently opened up a spot. And then, uh, one of my favorite food trucks is Boo's Best. Absolutely love it. Uh, Boo's Best Barbecue has some this weekend. Actually, still have some left over. Those would be some some of the spots. But really, there's there's so many fantastic spots in our community. I hate to just name a few, but if I had to go with recents, those that are fresh on my mind, eat these great spaces. I love it. Fantastic. And uh, favorite dinner spot? You can share a few or one, whatever works best. Sure. My favorite dinner spot. Let's see. So I would have to say, just gosh, and we we had this the other night, uh, boil and root. Great selection. Um, just uh, <laughs> my mom was just like, "Can you go back?" So boil and root, uh, favorite dinner spot off the top. Great food, great menu, and I'm seeing it right now. I was looking at those candied yams <laughs> that she had left over the other day. Just amazing. 
I love it. I love it. Frankie, this was so much fun. Thank you for coming on, sharing your story and everything that you're doing. We just appreciate it. And uh, I always I always get so much from it. And this is no exception. So thank you again for everything. And it's perfect timing. We've got the whole crew there. So it's the grand, so talk about timing, right? It's the yeah. grand finale. So, yep, we, we almost made it. You made it totally. And that was my precious daughter, Zoe, who I'll also say I didn't get a chance to mention this is a corporate namesake. So Amanda is the Zulu and Zosa word for power. And the name behind the organization is it's a social justice consulting firm. My focus is addressing uh, birth inequities for Black and Brown people. And I named it after my daughter. Her middle name is Amanda. First name Zoe, Zoe Amanda. And as I was looking for names for my organization, this one obviously uh, speaks a lot because of her, her birth story and what inspired me to the organization in the way that I did and our focus in my experience with her. So Amanda, Amanda the Amanda group and uh, Zoe Amanda. So of course the boss couldn't help but <laughs> come in throughout this yeah. conversation. The big boss is like here. They, they, when you, you got, if you're talking about me, I got to be here for that part of it. So that's perfect. Yeah. Um, so Frankie, for anybody, here. If, anybody who wants to learn more, get in touch with you, what's the best way to connect with you? Sure. You can check out my website. It's theamandlagroup.com. And all of my information about my services, the articles that you mentioned, um, doula services that I provide for expecting and postpartum birthday people, everything is there. TheAmandaGroup.com. Fantastic. Thank you again. Appreciate all the time. And uh, hope you have a fantastic day. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. And uh, Happy New Year. And, and, and have fun with, with the kiddos. We're having fun. Well, thank you, Jason. You have a great day. And thank you so much for this opportunity. Appreciate it. Hope you enjoyed the episode as much as I enjoyed making it. If you can, give us a like, comment, subscribe. Let us know what you think. And tune in next time as we have another fantastic guest. And hope you enjoy your morning, afternoon, evening, wherever I'm catching you. Thank you again.